welcome into episode four of the crossover podcast. We have an incredible show lined up for you guys today. Um, we have on with us author, media personality, and sports marketer Brandon Steiner. Brandon, thank you so, so, so much for joining us. We're really excited to have you. Always good to be with you guys. You, I, I'm glad to be at the beginning. Uh, just so I can take credit for all your success. <laughs> oh, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Listen, That's why we have you on. If, if, if you're the reason why we're successful, you'll, you'll get all the credit. You'll get all the credit. Yeah. I think you get it all started with number four, Lou Gehrig. <laughs> exactly. How has your quarantine been? My quarantine's been fine. I mean... You know, it's always a little troublesome when you don't have control of. I think anybody can deal with any amount of pain or um, disruption as long as you know it's going to end. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And um, when you don't know what's going on and when it's going to end, it's always troublesome. But, you know, I've been anchored down. I have the, the luxury of one of my offices is not that far from here. So I'm able to go in a little bit, do a little bit of work. And this has been a good reset for us. Because uh, that's one of the companies I just started. You know, I'm not with Steiner anymore. So I'm with Collectible Exchange, new company, Collectible Exchange. And everybody with this virus has been home, going through their closets, going through their basements, going through their garages and get rid of stuff. So, and that's what my site does is you go, you can go on my site, you can sell whatever you want. And uh, I think we have over 50,000 items. We just launched like five months ago. We have 50,000 items and every day it's just zooming and is. If you're a collector, there's really good deals. There's people kind of, there's just a lot of buying and selling. So I'm not, I hate to say this virus has been a good thing for me because I I hate the virus and the fact we lost lives, but it has been an interesting boost for collectible exchange, I will say, which is very odd, but it's true. And uh, we've had a lot of time to work on the site and do some really good work because I have high hopes for the website. It's like the new version of eBay. So I think we could do a lot better than eBay, uh, knowing all the experience I have with collecting and everything else. So I'm excited about it. I was going to say that that is a great segue into our first topic. So can you tell us a little bit more about both your current ventures and how you got to where you are today? I know you've had a very storied career, but we have time. Well, I mean, you know, um, yeah, we did. We definitely need some time on this. But the first thing I would say is, if you really want to know the whole story about how I built Steiner, which pretty much doesn't exist anymore, it's kind of folded into uh, fanatics. But if you go to my website, Collectible Shades, I am giving away the book free, any of my three books. And uh, so you should go there and get the book, but you really get the full story. It's a good story. But, you know, it's been ups and downs. I mean, I think when you start something, I think in life in general, I think when you start something, you go through transitions and Starting Steiner, I mean, a lot of people looked at what I had, but, you know, there's a lot of trials and tribulations to get there. And there's a lot of trials and tribulations to stay there. I always tell people, like, when you're trying to be extraordinary at something, the goal isn't to get there. It's to stay there and beat where you are every day if you want to be on the top of the heap. And that's a lot of pressure. Like, you know, at one point, I probably had about 60 or 70 athletes on the contract and it was exciting partnering with the Yankees or a Derek Jeter or Mariano or Peyton Manning or Muhammad Ali. But it's a lot of responsibility for a lot of people and you can't screw up. So, you know, it's a lot, you know, to do it right and to keep it. And I, I was very proud of the work we did. I think that when I left Steiner about a year ago now, actually, you know, I probably got four or five hundred emails and letters from my customers 
just thanking me, which is really absurd. And uh, people thanking me for the experiences. And, you know, I think when you start something or you go through transition, which you guys seem like the young guys and you don't realize, like when you graduate college, huge transition, you know, the party's kind of over, at least that particular party, you know, you really can't go back to you live in your home. You kind of could, you kind of, you know, don't want to, and that's a big transition. You know, that's a lot of weight and people don't say, Oh, how, how lucky are you? You know, yeah, you're lucky because you got a lot of opportunity and process to build up on. But there's a lot of pressure to figure out, like, how to get yourself stabilized, considering you really had to, to do that for the first 20 years. And then all of a sudden you get married. Oh, my God. Got to get a place to live. Now I'm accountable for a family. Got to have some kids. That's a transition. Just like when you get the corner office. Everybody wants the corner office. They want the glory, but you don't want the story. And the story really is, you know, that comes with later nights, not being home as much. So, you know, for me, you know, when I wrote my third book, it was really a big transition for me. You know, when I turned 50, I realized I'm like, whoa, I am sprinting in the wrong direction. <laughs> Enthusiastically, like I just, I got to get a handle on my health. I got to figure out how to be a better dad, how to be a better husband. Well, I still have a little room to do that. And I got to calm down. Like, you know, I just could not get into anything but the fifth gear, you know, just, so I tried, you know, really balancing out. What's funny is as I balance things out and I don't believe in work-life balance, that's bullshit, but you got to respect life. Yeah. You know, you got to remember, you got to call your parents. You can't just, well, I'm busy. I'm busy. You know, they're your parents. Like you got to respect your friends. Like you got to respect your health. You can't just ignore it because when you need it, all those things won't be there for you. So, you know, when I, when I got to 50, I realized that I started putting a lot of effort and time into all those things. And what's funny is I got more work done after I started, you know, departmentalizing everything because you never think you have the time. But the reality is that when you actually spend enough attention on those other, it actually supports everything you're doing. You have more energy, you have more support behind you. And that's a really important lesson. I try to teach a lot of that people when I go and do speaking things. And the other thing is that it's so important, even at your age, to also not only want to do good. I mean, it's also important to do well. Like a lot of you want to make a lot of money. You want to have a big house. You want to get nice cars. It's important to want to do good. It's important to want to do well. But most of you would say when it comes to the charity and the helping other people is like when I do well and I get a bunch of money and save, then I'm going to give money to charity. Then I'm going to spend some time. But. The reality is that's ridiculous, that theory. And I, I want to make that one statement saying that, like, what I've learned over the last 20 years particularly is that the more good you do, it leads you to doing well. Not you do as much well as you can, and then it leads you to doing good. Which is a mistake that a lot of people make is they wait till they're really a lot older to help people and to be more charitable. But the joy really is in helping people. I always say helping people is, is not a burden. Helping people is an opportunity that will lead you to sheer joy. So even at the age of in your 20s, the more good you can do, that's what leads you to doing well. When you ask me, how do you get a company started like Steiner or even Collectible Exchange? I think about what good I could do, what value I could do for players that I know, celebrities that I know, teams that I know. You know, so I turn even up the volume even more, even though I'm starting a new company. I'm doing more charity work. So even during this virus, every day I would wake up, and especially the first month, there wasn't a lot going on. Everybody was kind of in this panic. So what I did is I would call somebody that I thought would maybe need help. I would call a charity. Hey, I'm on your website. This website's no good. 
you're trying to raise money, but your site is not set up to receive money. Change this, do this, do that. Write this email this way. Because I'm a marketer. So mm -hmm. I try to help people that normally couldn't afford to have someone like me help them with their marketing. And, you know, listen, I don't know where that's going to go other than just feeling good at the very least and doing some good. So there's always a little bit of time, whether it's your money or your time, to do some good. And when you do good, that leads you to doing well. You know, when you're your age, like, how do you go meet CEOs? How do you go meet influential people? You guys don't have that much to offer. So how are you going to do that? That's the big question, right? Mm -hmm. Right. How do I get this sports room? How do I get this house? How do I go build a big company? That's the question. And really what you want to know is what's the process? What are the secrets? You don't really want to know about this house. You want to know about the how do you foundation get there? I built, the concrete I poured, the hole that I dug, that I filled in. And, and the answer really is you need to find value that you can provide decision makers so you can somehow get in their loop. It doesn't all convert right away, but if you can figure out how to provide value, they're not going to leave. They're not leaving you. Who doesn't want to? Who doesn't want to hang with people that are helping them? So the goal, especially at your age, is to figure out how to increase your value and how to provide value, whether it be for your neighbor, anywhere you work, whoever you work with, and any relationship you're in, whether it's your friendships, your girlfriend, your boyfriend. You know, how do you provide more value? Because that's you keep long-standing relationships going because there's nobody who wants to help you more than the people you have relationships with, right? Mm -hmm. So the goal is to right. keep as many of them going as you can. And how you keep those relationships fresh and burning is to do that. So, you know, right. it was a long haul. It was a long haul. Just like collectible exchange now is a long haul. But the most important thing is what do my customers need? Knowing who your customer is and what do they need? Not what I think, not what my gut feeling tells me. <laughs> you know, just because you really got to dig down deep to think about what value can I provide? Because so much going on out there with collectibles and gifting and athlete marketing. What can I do that's going to be different? What can I do to provide athletes something that they don't already have? And it took a lot of days down in my gym on my treadmill to come <laughs> up with the ideas I have now. I didn't think about these ideas overnight. So that's the hard part. You know, the hard part is not only grinding, but it's the time you got to put towards thinking about something that's going to work and then trying to validate it, you know, trying to figure out not only does your idea make sense, but is it really going to work? Is it realistic? So kind of building off that, have you ever been in the situation where, because obviously, and I totally agree with what you said, you, you want to bring joy to other people rather than yourself. And that's what gets you further in life. A thousand percent. I totally agree with that. So have you been, ever been in the situation where you tried to help somebody and they kind of took advantage of you or they used that in the, in the wrong sense? And then they kind of backfired on you. Thank you for asking that question. Let me explain something to you, Stephen. If you forget everything I say in this conversation, please remember this. If you want to play a grown-up long game, do as much as you can for as many people as you can, as often as you can, and expect nothing back. Right. If you're doing something for someone and you're afraid they're going to take advantage, don't do it. Because yeah. you're not doing it with the right intent and the right purpose. You got to know who's important. You got to know what's important to who's important. You got to do what's important for who's important as often as you can every day. You yep. do that and do as much as you can for as many people as you can, as often as you can. Expect nothing back. If you called my children right now, who are about your age, by the way, uh, my son is 29, my daughter's 25, so I figure in that range. 
My daughter would tell you that verbatim. What's the most important thing, Nicole? Do as much as you can for as many people as you can, as often as you can. Expect nothing back. Know who's yep. important, what's important, and do what's important for who's important as much as you can. The reality is you guys don't do that. Your mother calls, oh, oh now it's my mother again. Oh, okay. Who's the most important person in your life? Your mother. Then it's going to be your wife, or it's going to be your boyfriend, or it's going to be your, you know, at the end of the day, you have to make sure you know what's important to the people that are most important to you. And I always say, I categorize this like this. It's like, you have to know what winning is for the people that are around you, whether it be your parents. If winning is seeing you once every other week, or winning is, um, you have to know what winning is for your siblings, because, you know, there's nobody more important than your family. You have to know what winning is for your boss. And you have to ask them, what's the best thing that can happen for you? What's the best thing I could do for you? And uh, people have missed that conversation. Yeah, but if I right. ask you what's important to you, if you're on your deathbed or whatever, believe me, you'd want to say goodbye to your parents. You want to say goodbye to your best friends. And you want to see your siblings. So you got to make sure you know that. But as far as helping people, like, of course people take advantage of you. Maybe. I've had people I've done favors for 20 years ago, and they come back to me a year ago or two weeks ago, and say, you know, Brand, I've been dying to call you. I got this opportunity for you. I think the goal think is, and the truth that I talk about is you got to put as much good out in the world as you can mm -hmm. for no other reason than because you can. Right. And you cannot keep score. If you got a shot clock in your office, you're in the, playing the wrong game. If you're trying to keep score, you're playing the wrong game. There's no shot clock. Nine, five, I, I don't know. What time is it now? I don't even, I mean, I come home, I talk to you guys. And listen, I'm running a little late and I got to check with the person who's most important, my wife. So I don't want to ruin her dinner, but I did make a commitment to you guys. So if you said, Brandon, we really can't change it, I would have done it. But being that I don't want to screw up my wife's dinner, who's been waiting for me to have dinner, I said, can we postpone this a little bit? I just want you to know, you got to talk it, but you got to live it. Yeah. Because a lot of guys are going to say, honey, I'm sorry, I can't have dinner right now. I got to do this interview. But so, you know, I always want to give you the respect because you guys are putting together a production. And I want it to be good. On the other hand, I live with a person and you have to give them the respect. Yeah. And you got to not just talk about it. You got to do it, even if it's not convenient for yourself. I hope you got that. That's a really great question. I really think it's a great question. And it's a real problem with younger people because usually you do something for somebody. You're like, what am I getting back? Nothing. Right. What am I getting back from doing this interview? Maybe somebody's going to watch it. Maybe you guys could use this as a get starter. Maybe you could steal some of my audience and build up yours. You know, to me, it's like if one person watches it and gets something good out of it, great. If you guys actually use this, then it enables you to get other guests because I was on it, great. You yeah. say, you know, that Steiner guy, good guy, like him. All right. <laughs> maybe five years from now, maybe we do some business. Maybe we don't. I don't know. Hopefully. Hopefully we do. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the most important thing is, you know, you try to create some value, even if you're over deliberate. I'm going to give you the same interview in this conversation as I will when somebody pays me $20,000 to speak. I don't judge it. I don't. There is no. Well, we're getting into another topic here, if you don't mind. But at the end of the day, consistency over time equals credibility. You don't want to go into your doctor's office. You get in surgery and your doctor say, you know, something you're really not that important. I don't even barely even know you. I don't know, that's like my last surgery. I'll do the best I can. I don't know. Like, if you're going to be a professional, you have to be the best you could be all the time, regardless of the day, regardless of the time. So I'm sitting in Tampa Stadium, spring training. It's the sixth inning. Mariano pitched the fifth. 
and I'm waiting for Mariano after the game. So I'm watching the game. All of a sudden, Mariano sits down next to me. And I'm not going to bullshit you guys. Like, I'm like, this is cool. Freaking Mariano there watching the Yankee game with me in the middle of his prime. I, so I turned to him. I go, dude, I thought we were meeting after the game. He goes, oh, I just pitched. I'm done. I said, yeah, that was just a spring training game. No biggie. Okay, really good. No biggie. He looks at me. No, what? I just mowed those guys down. One, two, three. Six pitches. <laughs> I said, yeah, spring training. He goes, no. No, 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 no. I pitched the same way in spring training as I do in Game 7 World Series, bottom of the ninth game on the line. There's no such thing as a big game. When you get on that mound, I only know one mindset and one frame of action. I just pitched the best I could possibly pitch, like it was the World Series, like it was the most important game ever. And the reason why I do that, Brandon, is because everybody always asks me when I get into Game 7, how do I deal with all the pressure, the game on the line? You know what I say? I don't deal with it at all. I only know one approach, the same approach every time I walk on that mound when I'm pitching in a, in a scrimmage or I'm pitching in spring training, a regular season game, doesn't matter. I only have one approach. But how many people do you know you see incredible variances in their behavior and those are not complete total professionals and they're definitely not somebody that's headed towards being extraordinary. And the real goal, especially when you're younger, is to get yourself trained to be consistent because anybody could be good on one day pitch one great game, but if you can pitch great games over 20 years, you can make great sales day in and day out. 35 years at Steiner, day in and day out. If you came to my office, you couldn't tell if I was doing a million-dollar sale or a hundred-dollar sale. Same approach, same level of respect, same level of focus, same level of energy. That's the key. That's the key is can you bring that kind of energy to have the stamina to go the long distance so people know. Because one thing that people know about me is, is that when they call, I'm going to pick up. And when I say I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. And that seems like a very small little thing. But, you know, you, you know, if the guy always comes through, you're going to him. Right. right? You always go to your people. So that's, that's really key. So consistency over time equals credibility. And as you're creating consistency over time, you're called thing called pop, which is progress on your process. The goal is to always win the game, be competitive, but the goal really is to improve your process. It's always being most critical of yourself. The best person to critique yourself is you. Self-analysis is the road to greatness. You know when you suck. You know when you can do better, which is just about always. But the goal is not to be too down on yourself. You just want to beat yesterday. That's kind of my favorite line, beat yesterday. Improve today so you're a little better than yesterday. Make a little more sales, make a few more calls, figure out how to make a better call than you did yesterday. And I think that people lose sight on that because they think that you become extraordinary overnight. You could become successful over a period of time, but to be extraordinary, you have to blow past success. To be extraordinary, you have to want to be the best that ever was at what you do. So if you're doing a pod, the first thing I, I had a pod, I did 250 of them. I realized I couldn't win. 250 pods later, I'm like, you know, something I can't win at this game. I don't have a winning game. I don't have a winning formula. Mm -hmm. Why? I see Bill Simmons. I see 30 other pods that are killing it. I'm doing well, but I'm not killing it. I said, what, what am I going to do a pod if I'm not going to have the best pod? I didn't yeah. think I could have the best pod. So the first question you got to ask her at the beginning is, who am I competing against? What would it take to have the best possible pod? What's the hook? What's the angle that's going to be different that's going to take some white space over? What are people that you're creating this pod for 
Who are the people, where are they going to get out of this that they can't get elsewhere? Value. What you can do for someone they can't do for themselves. How do you make this pod better and bigger, different than what anybody else is doing? So that one day after you're doing this for 10 years, it's the best pod ever. Hmm. And you got to be honest about it because it's not going to happen overnight, but it's doable. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. And that's what I felt about my business. I was like, when you ask about, it's like, I wasn't interested in just being another business. Yeah. I want to be the best that ever was. I want to completely change the business. And by the way, at 60, I'm doing it again. My new business is completely disrupting everything that's been done. I'm reversing the whole process. I'm actually bringing the athletes direct to retail so they can actually, people can buy directly from the athletes. I'm giving my customers a chance to sell each other as opposed to just buying what I'm selling. Solving a problem. Mm -hmm. Brendan, obviously you're a a sports guy. Do you think that that drive that you have to be the best is was inspired by any of the athletes that you looked up to growing up like you, you watch the last dance you see michael jordan has the same mindset that type of thing well michael jordan's an assassin but you know what, what's important to learn about michael jordan and about becoming extraordinary which is really more the point because the answer to your question is no but the the real answer to the question really is is that what makes you what gives you the drive to be extraordinary and the answer really is hostile and a high level of not acceptance. Like, I, I will not accept just having a pod that a lot of people listen to. If I don't have the best pod, I'm not interested. If I have just a collectible company, just like everyone else, I'm not interested. I have a high level of not acceptance. Even if I have to stay up till, and God knows how many nights I didn't sleep, how many nights I just worked throughout the night, how many nights where my competitors were sleeping, I was working. When they were working, I was working harder. You know how many nights? Like, it's the same thing. Like, because I have a non-acceptance, I don't want anybody mentioning that they're equal to me. Like Jordan talks about in his last dance about Clyde Drexler. He's talking about, no, no, no. You don't mention that person in my same breath. He's not equal to me. When people would start mentioning other companies to me that did what I was doing, I'm like, no, you don't mention that. No. And I would just go out and beat my competition. I remember one of my biggest competitors saying, Brandon, what we don't like about you and why you have a bad reputation with our company is that you will do anything to win. You refuse to lose. There's never a negotiation where you just let us have it. I'm like, that's what you hate about me? I'm like, yeah, I have no interest in letting you win anything. Because I'm hostile. Yeah, I'm hostile. You know why? Because I think of every person in my life, and to answer your question about what makes you, what gives you the drive to be great or extraordinary, I think of every person that questioned me, that doubted me. My guidance counselor who told me I shouldn't go to college. My teacher who basically... You know, th- thought I was a moron, an idiot. My brother called me an idiot every day growing up because I couldn't write that well or read. People that told me that my business idea was stupid and, and they didn't want to invest. The banker wouldn't even give me the loan, made me take a second mortgage in my house. I have a list, I have a list of all of them. And every day my, in my closet, I have that list. I look at them and that re-engages my hostility to remind me that I've got to be hostile and I give nobody any air. I happen to have the wonderful experience of playing with Michael Jordan at his camp a couple of times at his camp. And I got on the court with him and I felt that hostility and he didn't feel my hostility. And that particular day I got him pretty good, but I understand it. You know, I understand that. And it, it really comes from a, a, a high tolerance for not accepting where you're at. And I would say that to you guys, it doesn't matter that this is the fourth pod. It doesn't matter where you are. What matters is what you're willing to accept. If you woke up tomorrow and said, you know, I'm, there's just no way. I'm, I'm not living with my parents anymore. I'm done. There is no way 
I'm going to live at home anymore, let's say. Now, I'm not saying that's a bad idea, good idea. I'm just using that as an example. Your mind would then start dreaming and scheming and, and well, what do I got to do? Well, I go live with some friends. I can go get a busboy job, waiter job. Um, I can go bartend. I can go deliver groceries. You would start doing whatever it took to get once you had a high level of non-acceptance of living at home. You start dreaming, scheming, and then you make a commitment saying, you know, if I got to work weekends, I got to work two shifts, I'm going to do it because I don't want to live here anymore. But only until you have a high level of non-acceptance does the dreaming, scheming, which is the next initiator, and then moves to commitment, purpose, passion. So you start with high level of non-acceptance. And what's important is that you perpetually have this high level of non-acceptance. You see Jordan throughout all those episodes. You would think the guy had never eaten. You think the guy had never won a game. Every game was another excuse about he's not going to accept it. I'm not going to accept this guy. He thinks he could beat me. I'm not accepting this. I'm not. It's really the truth. So once you have a high level of that acceptance, acceptance and it's consistent over time, we are never happy with what you have. Very important. Not necessarily happy, but satisfied. Now you have a ball game. You're on your way to extraordinary. So you, if people think like, oh, I'm going to find purpose. I'll find the right thing. No, you need to just figure out where you are and whether you want to accept it or not. Yeah, I mean, do I look that I mean, did I get I mean, I got so much motivation, inspiration from so many athletes, because I would say to you guys, anytime you're around somebody that's extraordinary, because you can't be a professional athlete about something being incredible. You don't just become a professional athlete once in a while. you got this God given talent and everything else. But if you're close enough to athletes. There's no way you just become a professional athlete that's worthy of anything that hasn't worked incredibly hard. Now, they may not be the most well-rounded, unbelievable human beings like any, any of us are, but when it comes to their craft, there was a work ethic, there was a scheme, there was a strategy that was unbelievable. You're talking about 300 people in the NBA. You're talking about a few thousand in the NFL. Like When you're at that level, you're around that person – all it is a learning experience to work with all those athletes is nothing more than a learning experience of how to become extraordinary, how to be great. So yeah, if my life was soup, yeah, that was a mixture of all those inspirations and motivation. But growing up was my high level of non-acceptance and listening to my mom and taking her guidance, which sometimes when you're a kid, you're stubborn, you don't want to listen to your mom. I was no different, but I made myself listen to her. And then my mother, I always say, you tell me you're selling me. And my mother always created a compelling story, which is one who taught me how to do that. She knew that by telling me what to do, I wouldn't do it. Nobody wanted it. Nobody wants to be told. So my mother would always tell me a compelling story. So one day I was like, you know, I don't know about school. I'm not feeling it. I don't know. Like my next door neighbor takes me to City College, which is a college up in the Bronx. He was the head custodial in charge of all the custodial uh, in, in the entire school. It's a big school. And he takes me, shows me this guy cleans, this guy uh, cleans the bathrooms, this guy does the cuts the grass, all this stuff. And he says, Brandon, you got to make a decision. You want to work one of these jobs? You want to work from the neck down or the neck up? Instead of saying, you know, you should go to school, you should go to college, you take school seriously. He didn't say that because he knew that would be my mother working me. He goes, you want to work from the neck down or the neck up? He said, you want to work from the neck up? The people from the neck up, a lot of them, most, and that, you know, it's back 40 years ago, like, the people that work from the neck up get degrees, go to college, do well in school. Just saying. I was in, uh, I was about 10 years old. And there's another time my mother wanted me to go to a speech pathologist, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and I'm like, I come home one day, I'm not going to speech pathologist. I can't stand it because I have uh, trouble pronouncing two or three letters. 
and I talk like this, and I really was, you know, I do real Brooklyn, real, you know. And my mother's like, you're going to be a truck driver when you grow up. Like, you keep speaking like that. There's nothing wrong with being a truck driver. You can make good money. So, of course, you know, I declare I'm not going back to speech pathologist. I'm not doing that anymore. The one time, and I mean one time my mother picked me up from school. The one time. If your mother only picked you up from school one time, you'd remember it, right? Yeah. She picks me up from school the one time. And we go, we're just going to go for a quick drive. I was just in the neighborhood, and I figured we'd pick you up. I want you to meet somebody. So we go. She pulls behind a, a garbage truck big white New York City garbage truck. We get out and she says, I want you to meet Joe. Uh, Joe, would you, I want you to meet my son. Yeah, you know, my son thinks that maybe this is a potential career for him to maybe be a sanitation engineer. Can you tell him a little bit about picking up the garbage, the benefit, you know, some of the ups and downs. This is probably a good career for my son. So he, the guy goes through the whole wherewithal, come on into the truck, see the truck, the whole thing. And we get back in the car. I'm like, listen, I just thought this was a good idea. If you're going to speak the way you're speaking, this is probably a career for you. You know, so I went back to the speech pathologist. So I tell people all the time, it's like, you, you know, you got to be able to create a, you know, to convince people. And I think there's a great lessons, but it's also like nobody wants to be told what to do. Nobody wants to be sold what to do. Mm-hmm. They need a compelling story of what to do. It's really important as you're growing your businesses to come up with compelling story about the value you're providing based on the person you're selling to, if that makes any sense. Absolutely. So Brandon, uh, Anthony speaking here. Nice to meet you. Pleasure to talk Hi, to us. Um, so obviously like all success stories come with a, with something bad that happened or not bad, but a failure, right? So curious to see how, where, how you got to where you were before, like what you, what you did before Steiner and what made you realize that what you were doing just was not cutting it. Cause you, you talk a lot about the motivational factor of just being the best, being the best. Did you hit a point in your life where you were like, well, I'm not bringing any value to the table right now. So what am I really doing? Like, when did you hit that point? Or if you ever did? Well, it's a good question. Um, Oh, I did. Oh yeah. Believe me. There's nobody more critical. Um, what I would say is that in my third book, living on purpose, Mm-hmm. What happened is on the second book, you got our balls. That was a big success. And what happened was I was reading all my reviews on Amazon. And this one review was like, how convenient it is for you, Mr. Steiner. Everything seemed to work pretty well. And I do believe that everything is interconnected. I believe in divine intervention. And but the guy was really riding me about how everything kind of fit one thing into the other, which in a lot of ways, all of our lives do when you look back on it. But there's I did fail to be transparent about all the bad shit that happened. I was definitely a little short on that, which I should have been a little more, I should have been a little more articulate about the failures and the stuff. So the living on purpose, I really articulated about the struggles and the failures. And that's where I came up with the dream big, sample small, fail quick concept. And that's one of the biggest lessons I learned in the the latter part of my, it's like, yeah, Brandon, you know, you got this gut, you got some success, but Every time you come up with an idea, it's the same process. Just because you've had some success in the past doesn't mean that you're going to be successful in the future. I tell kids all the time, including my son, I'm like, like my son runs into the hallway, into the hallway with me when he was in high school. He's like, you know, Dad, I'm a lot smarter than you. You couldn't even do my homework. I said, you know, son, you're probably right. You are smarter than me. It was like one in the morning. You know, my kid basically got, I think, one grade that wasn't an A in high school. Scarsdale High School is pretty competitive. And he kind of followed that up with pretty much mostly A's in Michigan engineering honors. He's a bright kid. But I stopped him in his tracks and said, listen, just because you've mastered the art of school doesn't mean you're going to master the art of life. 
Big and when I ask you a question, I'll come back to you in 10 years. Can you provide every day and put food on the table for you and your family? Can you provide a, a consistent work life for a whole bunch of employees that are counting on you? Can you come up with value for clients day after day so they want to do business with you? I got to tell you something, Buster. That's a lot harder than studying what you got in chapter three. <laughs> but right now, you've mastered the art of school, and I give you all the props. You are a lot smarter than me, and I've ever have been in school, and I give you that. So when you talk about your failures, though, to me, it was your ego, you know, and, and making sure you can step outside yourself to see the reality and making sure you have some accountability police around you to make sure they're telling you. Like for most of you, when you're younger, you know, if that's your parents, maybe you got a distant relative or maybe you got a sibling. And at some point that grows a little old, but those are the people always going to tell you the truth. So if you really want to know where you stand on an idea, you got to step outside yourself and see yourself. And sometimes you got to love your idea a little less. But what I learned later in my career about the failures, and I had many of them, and you can really read about them living on purpose, but I was very articulate about it, not only from business, but personally, uh, just different, I think, places where I definitely didn't co- you know, get up to snuff. And that is, let the facts be the facts, especially in today's analytics. So, you know, dream big, think of your idea and, and act on it. But sample, try your idea out and let those results and feedback speak for themselves. And then if it's not working, either adjust your idea, ask for help, which is where a lot of entrepreneurs fail to do. You may have a really good idea, but you may have to tweak it. There's a million ideas that have made it with some tweaking. Even Dunkin' Donuts, when you think about it, I mean, was about to go out of business. And they started bringing on the coffee and they started doing the breakfast. You know, that guy was a genius. Saved Dunkin' Donuts and it's one of the bigger, more popular chains. So you, it's like you got to make sure you know where to go get some help and some advice about somebody who's going to be honest with you and doesn't have to tiptoe around you. So I've had so many situations where even some of my best, best ideas have failed. You know, I opened up a chain of ice cream stores called Last Licks, which is probably one of my best ideas. And to be honest with you, I still think it was one of my best ideas. But I always say execution beats strategy for lunch. And you see all these people charting shit out. And I mean, all that's important. But, you know, you got to execute, man. And, and I sucked. I mean, I, I just sucked. I mean, I just not managed that situation well. I didn't find the right people. Yet I had a great idea. My strategy, unbelievable. My execution, D, F. So <laughs> it's really important to come up with a good idea, but you have to realize that as important as the idea is, because there's a million people with a million ideas, you have to understand the difficulty and be honest about the execution and realize what you can and can't do and who the people are going to help you. And at Steiner, believe me, I've got a long list of my failures. I, I did mention a lot of them in the book things, directions I took the company in, I tried doing and, you know, ups and downs. So I think the most important thing about failing is that it's not the opposite of, of losing. It's a big part of winning. You know, failing is not the opposite of winning. Failure is a huge part of winning. And if you want to win big, where I struggled was, because I always want to win. I was competitive and I, you know, I, I kept thinking that every, all my life was going to be a shutout and it just isn't. Yeah, if you're only doing a few things, maybe you could be a shutout. But I think if you start growing and running into a much bigger business, you're going to have a lot more wins. But with those wins, they're going to come losses. Yeah. And how you deal with those losses and learn from those losses and kind of can stay confident. And I think a big part of it is, is understanding you are going to lose. No matter how smart, how good your idea is, sometimes it's just not in the cards for that idea to work. 
it may have nothing to do with you. And that's important to realize, not take it too personally. But when you get stuck, you see, like, sometimes you have a boyfriend or girlfriend, and, you know, it's like, oh, man, I was engaged for six years. And we end up breaking up. Like, I don't know, man. You went out for three years, you were engaged for six. Seems a little lengthy to decide whether you're going to get married or not. And then that's when you start having the regrets, is when you hold on ideas that aren't working and for too, too long. Instead of stepping outside yourself, and even though it's a tough pill to swallow, but you keep thinking it's going to work, that's the ego and stubbornness of you. But to step outside yourself and see yourself, or to go again to the accountability police, those few people that you could trust, and say, dude, you're probably going to need to have to leave her. Maybe she then sees that she wants to get married, or maybe it's just not meant to be. That's a hard pill to swallow. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, it's a reality of it. And that's how it works sometimes with products and things you're trying to do. If it's that, that, there's that song, you know, should I stay or should I go? It's like, it's hard. You put a lot of love and and attention to our idea. And it's really hard to walk away, especially when you're a committed entrepreneur. But sometimes your idea sucks. (laughs) It's just not as good as you think. And you got to come to reckon with that because... If you have the confidence, you'll know you'll come up with a better one. Was that like one of your hardest parts was just coming to terms with one of your like your failing like uh, things like you didn't want it to fail, but you're just like you stuck it out too long or a little like not long enough. Like, how does that process work? Exactly. If you ask any CEO, they'll tell you one of my biggest failures is holding on to certain employees too long and yeah. holding on to certain relationships too long. And one of the first things that one of my one of my first bosses when I sold my company this big company said to me, he goes, one of the biggest strengths in a leader is being have the having the balls to fire shitty customers. And I say the same thing because quality of customers and quality of friends is as as a person, you only live one life. And you have to have the balls to fire friends that suck. You have to have the ability to break up with girls or boys, whatever. You have to have the ability to realize that that's just not bring out the best in me you have to be able to walk away from clients and i have fired some clients and it took a lot of balls like you know, you're making money on a client but they suck they're sucking the air out of you they're demanding they're not grateful they're not appreciative of it and it's really important that you stay focused on high quality clients because a bad client never pays they drive your employees crazy then your employees end up quitting so you got to hire new employees it doesn't work out even though you're making some quick money grab so you got to have the balls to walk. And that's where a lot of entrepreneurs come up short. Yeah. Know, because, you know, it's hard to go fire a customer, hard to go fire an employee that's making good money but isn't following the culture that you've set up in your business. It's a really valuable lesson. And as a young person, it's so critical as you're starting to develop your brand even more so that you do surround yourself with the right type of people. And it doesn't have to be a certain education or this or that. It just has to be... Like, I just judge people whether they're a good person, not what they look like, not, because you don't know. The person who's maybe not dressed great, but, you know, a good person's a good person. And usually good people rise to the top. So, like, I always make a commitment. It's like, I don't, I'll do anything I can for people that I like, that I feel are good people, regardless of what their title is. Because it's amazing people that I've helped along the way. And 10 years later, they're, like, running some big company or they're this and that. It's like, even when you're young, you're like, relationship with a commissioner you know how when that guy's a freaking intern you you become friends with him and then he keeps moving up and you still maintain your friendships that's how yeah mm-hmm. it all comes together like i'm 60 now and i have friends that are commissioners that are this that are that that are senators that are because 
those people all started where you started peeing in the same pot. Yeah, exactly. We got to start. Oh, we all got to start somewhere. So we're all starting from the bottom. But when you start, you know, it's, it's so important to, to really maintain relationships is to constantly bring value and look to try to help those relationships all the time, anytime, and not worry about what you're getting back. I call them, check in on them, anything I can do. Brandon, I, I, can't, I have no business for you. It's okay. I'm just checking it. Maybe I can still help you. You think that we just worked together for six years now because you're not in that job anymore, that's it? That's no. not me. Because within another year or two, there'll be another job, and maybe we'll do something there. If not, hey, it was a relationship. I value relationships. But it's yeah. amazing. Like when I left Steiner, how many people a year later now I still haven't heard from? People I've made a lot, a lot of money for. I value relationships. Like I think relationships are not easy to come by where you see people that you like and you get along with. I don't take, I can't take that for granted. Right. Brandon, I want to shift gears just a little bit. You, you, you brought up your books a couple of times. I'm wondering if there are any books that you read either growing up or later in life that you feel helped you in either your career or in your personal life. Okay. First of all, you know, I'm half illiterate, right? You know, I can barely read and write, right? <laughs> I didn't know that. I wish I could show you the text by brother. So I just had a little argument with my brother because I had asked him to send some photos. I was doing a photo book and I'd asked him to help me with some blogs that I was writing on. He goes, oh yeah, I forgot you can't write. I'm like, because my brother's an incredible writer. I'm like, yeah, I can't write. But last time I checked, yeah, I wrote three books and you wrote zero. <laughs> and I've written over 2,500 blogs and you've written, oh right, zero. <laughs> so, you know, I'm like, at the end of the day, listen, I have a lot of ADHD issues, so I don't read entire books well. I don't read well. You got to remember, I had a 760 in my SATs. That's combined, by the way. And pretty much almost a zero on my English. I, I just couldn't even sit there for the test. But yet I figured out how to get into Syracuse. So I'll tell you a quick story. Um, I work for my dream job, and I've, wor I've been working since I'm 10 years old. So my dream job, even going to get an accounting degree, no less, by the way, which that's a whole thing in itself. But so I get the accounting degree and my dream job, I cooked all through high school and college. I worked full time in college and probably about 30 hours a week in high school, which is probably unusual even in this day and age. So I get out of school and all I really want to do is work for hospitality, Hyatt. I go move to Baltimore. I get this job and I'm, I'm opening up the Inner Harbor Hyatt Hotel. And that was the first hotel in the harbor. And I worked there for two and a half years. And when I say work, by the way, I don't know what I don't know what goes on now, but I'm talking 90, 100 hours a week, easy. I had to live two blocks from the hotel because I was so tired. I don't think I could possibly get home much further away. And I wanted to be at work right away the next day. I mean, literally, I worked seven days a week, the whole thing. Two and a half years go by, my mother, I called my mom. I said, Mom, I got fired. Got into a little political hassle with one of the managers, and I got fired today. Can you believe what these people did to me? Two and a half years, I got three promotions, and my mother says, hold up a second. Hyatt Hotels are a growing chain. I'm hiring good people. I get rid of good people. Obviously, you have some flaws in your game. Obviously, you got some problems in your style that need some improvement. Figure my mother was going to give me a shoulder to cry on. She's like killing me. <laughs> I'm, I'm crying. I mean, I, I'm devastated. I go to the bookstore. So I told you I'm not a big reader. I go to the bookstore. And I'm like, you know something? My mother is telling me this. She's probably right. 
because I couldn't have worked any harder. So obviously I've got to work on some of these rough edges. And I start picking up every motivational self-help book on the planet. So to answer your question, which you got to really read, you got to read the second book, which really gives you the turning point of my life, which was at Hyatt on the rooftop restaurant. This guy came in and said, would you like to work three months a year and be independently somewhat wealthy? I'm like, yeah. And I went out for dinner with him. They gave me these truths of life. Just a rogue situation. Because you're going to work three or four months if you follow these truths. I put them in my second book. And it would be a whole nother hour conversation to go through the truths to that important. But I live by them. And it's how I made a lot of my success and my money. But to answer your question is, when I went to go get those books, Dale Carnegie was my first on my agenda. How to stop worrying and start living. And uh, how to win friends and influence people is, is a no-brainer. It's a must-win. The Greatest Success of the World by Og Bandini is a book that I give out regularly. What I didn't learn in Harvard, what I didn't learn in Harvard Business School, I give out regularly. And 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 just two books that were mandatory reading at my company for years. One is How to Sell Anybody Anything by Joe Girard, which is an old school style of selling, but it's about who not who you know, what you know, but what you know about who. And it's a style of selling, of relationship selling, which is such a lost art today because you got to play the long game and everything's a click and a pick. And you've got to work against the grain. But if you're into the long game selling, if you believe that develop a relationship with someone could take you in a million directions down the road, then you're going to put that extra work in to find out when your sister's birthday is, when your kid's graduation is, checking how you're feeling, and really have a relationship with somebody, not just to call them when you want to sell them something. Joe Girard was a master. And one day I was able to hire him. He was like already almost 80 to come and speak at my company. And I've made millions of dollars off Joe Girard's system. I should have given him a big check. Um, (laughs) Because I used his system. I believed in it. It's random. Like you'd have to go order that book online. And then the other person who was like a tremendous mentor to me was Harvey McKay, who I ended up developing a great relationship with. I'll tell you about that story in a second. You know, swimming with the sharks. Uh, don't trust the man. Takes his shirt off his back. Harvey was a, a genius, a brilliant guy. So what happened one day was I was trying to find some speakers for my company. So I called up Harvey random. I, I called up Harvey, you know, rogue, because I have the balls. I, I, I never hesitate to call anybody. I'm like, Harvey McKay, I read every one of his books. The guy's been like a mentor. I've never met him. And I call him up and I'm like, you think maybe one day you come and speak to my company? He goes, Brian, I get like $75,000 to speak, literally. I was like, well, that's not going to happen. You think maybe we could do some barter, some trade? He goes, Brian, the least I've taken in the last 10 years is $50,000. I definitely didn't have that. So about a year and a half later, and this is everything I've learned at Harvey, but a year and a half later, Harvey calls me random. He goes, Brian, you're not going to believe this. The governor of Minnesota is putting on a big fundraiser. I was in charge of the silent auction. And... I got nothing. And this thing is in two weeks. Could you help me? I said, Harvey, be my pleasure to help you. I've read every one of your books, the stuff I've learned in your books. It'd be an honor to help you. Go to my website, pick out the stuff you want. I'll take care of it. I'll get it shipped out. He calls me up two hours later with a list of stuff he wants. I said, Harvey, I'll have this stuff to you by Friday. And by the way, call me if you need anything else. It's really a pleasure taking care of you. He's like, you're Harvey McKay and me? That's my line out of my book. I'm like, listen, since I've read that book, whenever I meet someone, I always say, listen, it's great to meet you. Please call me if you ever need anything, if I ever could be helped to you. And I mean it. That was like a Harvey McKay line. And I mean it. So anyway, 
He calls me back the next day. He goes, you're not going to believe this. And you've been really generous, but I actually need a few more items. I said, it's not a problem. I told you to call me whenever you need anything. I meant it. What do you need? Boom. Okay. So I send it. He calls me up the next day. He goes, Brandon, you're not going to believe this. I still need a few more items. But listen, if you want, George Steinbrenner is flying to this event. He's friendly with the governor. If you want to get on the plane with him to join the event, that would be great. I said, you know, honestly, I know George already. I've met him a bunch of times. I'm really busy. I don't have the time to get on the plane, but it's my pleasure to take care of you. I'll send those items out right away. He has the event. Everything goes well. I don't hear from him. Nothing. Calls me up a year later. He goes, I just got to tell you something. You sent me thousands of dollars worth of stuff. You never even called me to ask me for anything again. Nothing like that's it. That's unbelievable. I'll tell you what I'm going to do for you. For like $10,000 of trade, I'm going to come and speak to your group. I, I, I can't let this thing go unnoticed. I can't have this balance. I said, Harvey, it's my pleasure. You don't owe me anything. It's my pleasure to help you. I'm coming to speak to your company. He comes to speak to my company, giving the best speech I've ever heard. And I've heard, I've gone to see, you go to the bookstore, I've heard everybody speak. I'm like a YouTube in person, everything. <laughs> There's five minutes left in his speech. The guy drops, hits his head. I know it because I had a brand new blazer on that I put under his head that was full of blood. I thought the dude was dead. Oh, my God. I'm tracking this guy. They take him to the hospital. Meanwhile, my whole company's there. There's like 150 people there. We're flipping out. The whole thing was just a debacle. So I'm checking in. I'm checking in. I'm checking in. Two months go by. Three months go by. Four months go by. Harvey calls. He goes, you're not going to believe this. I was in Japan. I had this something wrong with my digestive system. I got dehydrated. And I had to go to the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. And I'm really fine. I said, Harvey, I just got to ask you one thing. Uh... So I'm really glad. And he goes, Brian, I really appreciate it because I know you've been checking in. I say, yeah, I just got to ask you one thing. You think you can come back and finish the speech? <laughs> and he, he guy starts going crazy. So he goes, I'm coming back. He comes back and finishes the speech and gives an entirely another speech. Wow. But to really make a long story short, not only do I develop a relationship with this guy, he calls me about two months later and he starts this mastermind group of 30 people. All one more successful than the other. No sports people. And that's how I became really good friends with Harvey. And he's the one that helped me write my last two books because he's written 11 books. Wow. Showed me how to write a book. And also, I could never get paid for a speech prior to meeting Harvey. we making $75,000 a speech. I said, Harvey, what's the key? So he taught me. And I, I make 15000 for a speech now. And I'll make seventy five. Once in a while, I'll get twenty. But at the end of the day, you got to play everything out, man. You yeah. know, sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. But... You play everything out, you know what I mean? And here I am, here's Harvey, who I gave him a few thousand dollars of stuff for his auction. Maybe the perceived value was a lot higher, but and here at the end of the day, I've become part of his mastermind group, become good friends, been to his house, teaches me how to write the books, teaches me how to speak, gave me a whole nother view of life. You don't really know who's going to change your life and when it's going to change, but you got to realize that the world is your classroom. Everyone's a teacher. You got to realize there's so many opportunities to meet people and you got to avoid the prejudgment and you got to leave yourself open to listening and really not be afraid to go after people that really rock your boat and do whatever you can to meet them. You can't put a value on meeting people, even though in this day and age, there's less and less of that going on. I hope that was a good story. I was a good, I just love that story just because the persistence of it calling Harvey and then he calls me up. And he's like, he asked me for all that stuff. I didn't even ask him to come and speak again. I just did it. And the guy calls me a year later and then comes and speaks for like practically nothing. 
it, 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 and it all comes back to what you said. Just you got to give the good to get the good. You know. You got to just do good. You do good, and that enables you to do well. Not I do well, and then eventually I'll do good. Do as much good as you can, and from that doing good, you'll do well. You'll meet people. The charity stuff you do, you meet people. Think about who you're meeting at these charity events by volunteering. I can't believe how many boards I've been on and people I've met I never would have been able to meet. That's how you meet. That's how you develop relations. How are you going to go meet a CEO of a big company? You get on a board with them. You help us to help with this charity. You know, uh, I remember I remember uh, Jamie from uh, Chase. He needed a player for his wife who's doing a big event. I'm like, how am I going to go meet Jamie? Yeah, now I'm up in his office. I meet him. You know, thank you note. I do a call with him. I'm like, hey, I got him a player. I mean, he needed it. It was for his wife, not for the bank. Never called him up. Oh, you owe me one, this, that, whatever. But, you know, hey, he'll remember me. I yeah. need something, right? It's all that matters. I mean, but you know, listen, just just putting good out there in the world. That's the key. Yeah. And at your age, it sounds like I'm 60 now, but I've been doing that since I'm your age. Man, that's a whole lot of good. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? I put a lot of good out there. For the last 20 years, up until about six or eight months ago, I, I haven't done as much, but I did two acts of kindness every day. I started every day with two acts of kindness. I would send somebody a gift, a check. A thank you note, uh, something that would, somebody would get that they didn't expect. Like what I was telling you about with, with, with the virus, I go online, help a charity out or help somebody out. I see they're doing their LinkedIn wrong or doing their social media wrong. I call them up and go, you're never going to be successful. I see what you're trying to do, but you're, you're, you're walking backwards on this. So, you know, you try to do as much good as you can. I'm like, I can't believe you would take the time to call me and give me all these tips. But imagine I've been doing that for 20 years, two acts of kindness. So here I am sitting 60, you know, I pick up the phone, you call people, they can't wait to help you back. Like, that's, that's, yeah. that's, that's, what, that's what you want to have in your life. You know, where you, people call you and it's not a big deal. Whatever you, you need, you're going to help them and vice versa. That's fun. It is. It totally is. So would you say in today's media, whether it be TV, movies, music, would you say that they're kind of shying people away from doing the right thing with too much negativity? Or no, would you say it's... I think the TV, the, the media thing's gotten a little confusing. The media's been very good to me, and I certainly built my brand through the media. And I think if you work with the media, the media will work with you. Um, you know, listen, the media's under a lot of pressure. There's a lot of it out there. So they're competing, and they're competing to take an angle, and they're competing to get a story. So it's not like, you know, this the true journalistic approach like maybe what it used to be where it's right. all about getting the story right it's about getting the story first but i think i think the most important thing about getting it right and or doing it right you know it starts with it isn't about doing the right thing it's about thinking about the right thing and a lot of it starts in the home you know about what you decide to do with your your siblings and your family and what you want to put into the world and i think we just need probably a lot more of that those discussions at the early ages um, right. I think, you know, when I look at what's going on, even in the world, it's difficult as a white person, even though I had a black roommate in college, um, I've certainly worked with a lot of black people over the course of time. Um, I adopted a, a black child that's, that was half black, half Native American. And I'm still saying, I, I don't know what it's like to be black, but what I do know is that if you want to make a change, my wife and I have a, a girls and boys home in White Plains that take basically kids from the age of like 11 or 12 to 18. If you want to make a change, what I do know is, is that you've got to get to young people. 
you know, yeah. get kids that, you know, six, seven, eight years old is when you can really give them rationale, reasoning. So those years that are extremely difficult to parent, especially in a single parent home, what we need to do is we need to go spend much more time in inner cities, regardless of the color. We need to go spend more time on the, on the boys and girls clubs and the YMCAs of the world, because those are the kids that need the nurturing, the love, and to really be explained how the world should be and could be. And I think once you miss those kids, it's, even me, like I can't turn back the clock on my childhood, like which was not an easy childhood. It's so important what happens in those first 10, 11 years you're on this planet. And I think if you want to make the biggest difference, and I'm not saying the only difference, because I think there's a lot of other issues, but one of the most relevant things you could do is spend more energy and time on younger children, giving them confidence, faith, better education, and a better shot. <clears throat> I hate all these individual schools, Catholic school, Jewish school, Russian school. I hate that because mm -hmm. it's just immediate segregation right out of the gate. My kids yeah. are better than you. They shouldn't go to just a regular school. Like every, I think all kids are deserving of the same and the best education. Yeah. And it should not be segregated because you have a little bit more money that you can go send your kids to a private school. And then they use the religious thing as an excuse of why they're sending them there, which is bullshit. But, oh, and then yeah. already, already, so now you're sitting in a classroom with like, and listen, I, my kids went to Scruggs, they're sitting in a classroom. They're not sitting next to anybody with color, anybody that's poor, anybody, it's just the same with a bunch of the same people. It's ridiculous. This big part of the growing thing is learning how to get along with the, the Spanish kid, the Russian kid, the Asian kid. You know, it, it's like, that's part of the whole thing. Yeah, you know, right. With, you know, it's like you you better get along, man. You better understand oh, yeah. how people work. If not, you ain't gonna be around long. That's exactly. part of the whole deal. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and now it's like all these kids all go to their own little. I hate that. I've never understood it either. Big public school. That's guy. the difference you could make. Is like I try to pour as much effort and energy into the boys and girls clubs. You know, group homes. You know, those kinds of things. That's where I put a lot of my energy. And my charity work. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can't have faith and fear at the same time. You can only be one or the other. So when you're, when you're fearful, you can't be faithful. And faith is such an important element because you need to have faith in yourself, faith in your strategy, and then faith in God to really prevail, especially in environments like this, but really all the time. And when you have faith in those three elements all the time, when you get into debacles like we've been in the last few months, you'll prevail because there is tremendous, tremendous opportunity with this adversity we're facing, especially for young people. Yeah. I mean, for, for someone coming out of college, oh my God, the virus, the job market. Like, Are you kidding? Do you realize the value? Your heads and shoulders, what you could do for where this business or where many businesses are going. The opportunities will be great. It's people that are a little older that have no ability or adopting to change that are going to be moved out. So um, it's really important, you know, to make sure you have faith. It's really important that you um, have, have confidence in yourself and your strategy, because if you're confident that you're a good person, a smart person, you got a good strategy about where you're going, then you're not going to be stressed. Yeah. And by the way, stressing is good. People come, yeah. I'm stressed, I'm stressed. So how do you, when was the last time you grew and learned when you were just chill? The only time you, you were stressed when you figure out what college you were going to get into, right? You were going out of your mind. You were stressed when you were taking courses that were a little bit above what you thought you could do. 
And those are the courses that made you into who you are. The school you got into, that's what made you into who you are. Like, you think about the most stressful times, those are the most growth opportunities you've had. So stress is good. Right. Because human beings have the ability to adapt to change. Right? So, you know, you think about it. It's like you have, you, you don't have any idea how far you could push yourself. And the point really is, is that your high level of non-acceptance and your ability to self-analyze and push yourself towards stress, push yourself towards uncomfortability is how far you're probably going to go in life. And most people get scared, you know, lifting too much weight. Oh, what, what do you think is going to happen? So the weight falls on you. But more than likely, you can lift it. We all could lift more than what we think. But are we going to have the balls to do it? I, I don't know. That's the question. <laughs> so, so kind of piggybacking off that, I know you mentioned before that uh, the virus has kind of had a positive impact on, on your business. Do you think a, obviously taking away the, you know, the tragedy of, of all the deaths and, and all the negative that it's, that it's brought about, would you say that something with this magnitude was necessary for a society to take the next step, whether it be business or a social movement or, or anything? Do you think something of this magnitude was necessary in order to take the next step? Personally, not from a factual standpoint, but from a feeling standpoint, yeah, I did. I think that I believe in divine intervention. I think that God had enough of us, you know, the way we're acting, the way we're treating each other individually, as far as country to country and disrespecting the planet and, and, and really not taking care of this planet, right? Not being kind and generous enough to each other. He put a, a huge situation on us where we would need each other and where countries would have to work together. I think he gave us a huge timeout. And then also there's just a bunch of stuff that we didn't have the balls to shut down. Some of the ways we were acting, some of the businesses that we were dealing with needed to be shut down. And this was a good excuse for it to be. Yeah. But, you know, I always look at like, not that I, not, I'm not ecstatic about all the seniors we lost in all those senior living centers, but we don't give the seniors enough love and attention in, in, in this country. We don't give the respect to our elderly like we should. Nobody takes care of these seniors the way they should as far as visiting them and taking care of them and then they, you know all the seniors that died in this country and such a large percentage of the deaths were seniors in senior homes you wonder about that message there is that we have to pay more attention to our seniors and our senior homes so i went to a senior home uh i did two things in a basically an old age home is one i did is i built a museum in one of them because when i went to the senior home and i wanted to do something nice for the older people one of the most common complaints was that their grandchildren didn't visit them. Why? You go to the senior home, you see old people. Who wants to go when you're 10 years old? So I built this beautiful museum with all this sports memorabilia. And what was great is the kids wanted to go and they wanted to see the museum. Then I said, how cool would it be if you had a sports bar in the old age home with some big flat screens, a pool table, a bar? Now, dad could say to his son, let's go visit grandpa. We could watch the football game for a couple hours with him. Yeah. on the big screen yeah so i built a sports bar in this place for them and had a couple athletes there's a show that i did on uh, yes network for about 10 years i did a show called the hookup you can see it on youtube all these little things i did for all these different and that's like that's the that's the good you could do like and the reason i did those two things is not only because it was a good thing for that home but i knew if i did it at those homes i thought the other homes would see it and it would be something that many many senior homes would put in yeah. So like when I try to do uh, projects like that, I'm trying to think not only of an idea that could be good at the moment, but it's have scale. 
And I think a lot of times people, they come up with good ideas, but they're not really thinking about, is the idea scalable? So you meet a nice girl, right? I think there's three guys on the ship. So, you know, we meet a nice girl, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and you start to really like her a lot. And then, you know, you think, is this scalable? Could this be like the mother of my children? Could this be the wife? Could this be the woman that I'm going to be with for the next hundred years? So you think you know how to think scale. And what I urge you to do is like think scale with business. He's like, yeah, this is a good idea. Yeah, it's a nice girl, but you know, I'm going to date her being fully here and there, but I don't want to, I can't take her home to meet mom. So it's safe with an idea. It's like, can you take that idea home to mom? Does it have scale? Can you really build off this thing? Can this thing get be gigantic, bigger than you could even imagine? Then you're swimming in the right pool. And, and the, the other lesson there, too, by the way, when you get into a virus like this is, so I was just talking to this kid before. He's like, I don't know what I'm going to do. The job market's really bad, and I know it's going to be really tough. I'm like, dude, you want some, like, cheese and crackers with that wine? Like, who are you? Like, are you kidding me? Save that shit for somebody else. I'm like, kidding me? You got no sympathy for me. Crazy? Fish where the fish are, bro. Okay. <laughs> There's tons of businesses that are killing it right now that can use your help. Make yourself useful. If not, go wait on some tables, go deliver some food, go drop some stuff off at a homeless shelter, whatever. But do something. Sitting at home worrying about the job market that you know nothing about isn't going to help you. But I will tell you, though, is with every boss, there is another side to a boom. And there are many, many companies doing extremely well. CVS, pharmacies, all your food products, grocery stores. Pizza Hut, Domino's. I mean, I can go on and on. Like, hey, adjust. Get your head on a swivel. And yeah. this is not something you need to think about just in a virus. This is what you got to be thinking about as a business person all the time, which is fish where the fish are. What's booming? Where are the trends? Where is this all going? What's the next hot thing? And that's the work. Right. That's the hard part. That's hard. But that's right. what you got to do because it's easy to go sink into you know, oh, my God, oh, my God, you realize what's going on? Look at all these people out of work. Oh, well, they're not interviewing the people that are booming, that are getting raises, and their businesses are skyrocketing. All you got to do is go onto the stock exchange, and you see some of the stocks going up, 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 up. Those are the mm-hmm. ones you want to dig into and look up on a website and see if they're hiring. And the ones that are going down, 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 get back to those another time. Because at some point, they'll lay off all those people. And when the business comes back, you remember those lists? And you'll go apart because they got no people because they fired them all. And you get right back in there that much easier because there are companies that are going down, 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 down. But when this thing does calm down, they're going to go back, back, up, 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 up. So you make a decision. You want to play the long game. You wait for those companies to come back, back, back up and go wait on some tables or go clean some streets or whatever. Or go fish where the fish are. And there's a bunch of companies just zone in on the companies that are doing well. Go zone in on the cities that are doing well. Okay. You live in New Jersey. That's not a particular state that's doing well right now. Okay. Charlotte, Seattle, Portland, Austin, they're booming. Can't find help. How bad do you want it? What's your level of non-acceptance? Now, what do you mean right. New Jersey's not doing too well? What's going on with us? Well, you're in flux. I mean, you know, you're in flux. You know, you've got a lot of people that got sick. You're going to be in a slow, gradual comeback. And it's going to be a difficult comeback. They're going to have to take its time. Same way in New York City. Oh, you can't just rush back into normal, normal business. Are you in you know, New York? I'm in Westchester. Okay. But, you know, you can't nice. be running around like normal. None of us can. Mm-hmm. This is just too many of us. We're just too many people packed in a small area, which is why this thing took off like it did and not in so many other areas, which is it's fine. 
you know, we got good leadership. The governors, I think, are doing a pretty good job. But it's going to be a much slower back to normal for us as we'll be compared to other parts of the country. And the problem is that it didn't necessarily happen this way for us as it did. It didn't happen the same for the other 80% of the rest of the country as it did for us. I mean, we went through a lot more drama than most of the other parts of the country, with the exception of maybe L.A. and one other two areas. Yeah, we got hit so hard. And, you know, this, it's going to take a while. See back, though. It's too badly. But there are parts of the country that you don't even know if anything was wrong. They didn't even know why they were staying in the house for. You know, they maybe right. saw a couple deaths. You know, you go up to certain places around the country, there's very few people that got this and very few people got sick. But, you know, they were all right. kind of part of the overdeal. But so that'd be back to, that'd be much more back to normal, quicker. You mentioned before that you're, you're originally from Brooklyn. Is there only, everybody's from Brooklyn, dude, somewhere or another. <laughs> you ever watch my Greek <laughs> fat wedding where he's like, everybody was there? It's like, that's how people from Brooklyn are. Like, everything started in Brooklyn. Let's not kid ourselves. <laughs> Whatever it was that was significant came from Brooklyn. I just actually, I finished an internship with the Nets. And I'm curious because, you know, their, their big marketing uh, selling point is uh, Biggie Smalls. Their city edition jerseys are all Biggie Smalls oriented and, and they have the court, Biggie Smalls, everything. They have his jersey retired in the rafters, everything. So I'm curious if you think they're relying too much on that different industry to make them relevant or if they should, you know, focus on their own history their, their New Jersey history and build from the beginning. I, I like the Brooklyn setup. I go, I go there when I can. It's a little tricky from Westchester, but I like it. I think they did a nice job there. You know, Brooklyn's, Brooklyn's freaky, man. You know, it's like it doesn't really follow any particular order of things, even more now than ever. I mean, you yeah. go to a Brooklyn Nets game, the whole thing is just there's just no rhyme or reason. You got some guy with his stomach hanging out in the first row at the <laughs> garden. You got, you know this celebrity and that celebrity, you know, you got all kinds of colors and walks of life. It's a melting pot, which is what Brooklyn is. Um, and then they, then listen, at the end of the day, it's a shame because they had that winning with Jason Kidd, you know, back in the day and Richard Jefferson. And, you know, they're going to get on a little run here. Don't kid yourself. They're going to get on a little run here. And when they get on that run, they'll find their real identity and it'll all come through. I was sorry to see Jay-Z move out of it because I thought it was really cool to have him as a part of it. Um, and I think they should have yeah. really given him more than one hundredth of a freaking point, if you want my honest yeah. opinion. I, I really like Jay Z a lot. I know him. I know him throughout the years, and I think they, that that should have just been. A, they should have wrapped him up. He should have been on the ownership team, frankly, and not just some fractional owner that they gave him a little crumb to, in my opinion. But I, I like the setup there. I like the food. Um, I like the stadium. It's got a good buzz to it. It's got a good feel. So. And, you know, your mark did a good job while I was there. We'll see what this new regime can do. Uh, you know, I, I liked it. Um, it was a little more comfortable. You know, you go to the garden, and I was saying, like, you know, it's like going to a business meeting. You go to the garden, you know, Madison Square Garden, and it's real. It's it's the Mecca Center. It's Madison Square Garden. That's a whole nother vibe. And it's meaningful right. to go to Madison Square Garden in a different kind of way, you know. So those are just two different things going on. But I, I think the Nets, when they, they haven't had that winning since they've been in Brooklyn, really. And I think mm -hmm. they're going to get some serious winning and some serious hype. And that will take them to the next level, which is what they need. No doubt. They've done a pretty good job on, you know, the Bed-Stuy. And they, they, they get it. They're playing up the neighborhood. And they've done a nice job there. I mean, for me, I personally could have done without. I mean, I like the Biggie Small stuff. I like the Bed-Stuy stuff. I could have done with a little bit less just because I grew up a New Jersey Net fan. 
So I could have done a, for a little more, you know, history and actual basketball rather than mark, like straight up marketing. But that's obviously that's just me. Or was yeah, it I'm good with that too. Yeah. Like, I see that. I, I'm not, I don't disagree yeah. with that. Like, you know, I don't let that stuff get in the way of it. Like I like, I, I like this coach. I think it's a mistake. Um, I, I agree. I, I hope I'm hoping the Knicks pick him up. I think he's a good coach, especially mm-hmm. in developing a younger team and making them into. I think he did a good job. Um, this general manager is a little crazy, so you know he's, he's got a big ego. So you know there's there's, there's that, but um, I guess the proof will be. Hey, listen, they got talent. They're stacked. Oh, yeah. They they should make oh, a yeah. difference here. So we'll see if that oh, happens. Yeah. And this is going to put a lot of pressure on the Knicks to step up their game. There's nothing better when this town's got. Two teams competing. Oh, yeah. at any sport, not just basketball, any sport. Yeah, it's, there's really is nothing better. And we're gonna have a lot to cheer for come August and September. There'll be a lot of sports going on, and should be fun to make up for all these last few months of not much to do. Business will be oh, booming yeah. for you then too. <laughs> I'm hoping. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Stevie. Also, to piggyback on that Biggie Smalls thing, he was a Knicks fan anyway, so I don't know where they're getting this whole Brooklyn it, Nets it, thing. It's the it's a cool concept because he's from there and stuff like that, but like. He literally was a Knicks fan, <laughs> so and like yeah. it's it's just it's wild. Brandon, um, I'm a I'm a diehard Knicks fan. Unfortunately, I love I started loving them when I would go to the Garden and watch Stephon Marbury play. Like that is like the it's, it's so rough. It's so bad. But you, you know, know, I don't get I don't get crazy about the Knicks thing. I know a lot of people do. I'm a Dolan fan. I just want to tell you, I think the guy <laughs> has done so much to try to win. If the guy didn't do a lot of the things he's done, then I'd be like, ah, uh, this guy. You got to remember, how many teams are in the NBA now? Is it 32? 30. 30. There's maybe eight teams. I don't think the Knicks are better or worse than probably 20 or 22 teams. If I named 20 teams right off the top of my head, you would not exchange to be that franchise. You would not want to be Sacramento, Charlotte, Orlando, even Minnesota, Atlanta. Should I keep going? Like, mm-hmm. It's really freaking hard to win in the NBA. It's a lottery ticket to get that one player, which is the difference maker. If you had LeBron the last 10 years, you were a great franchise. If you had Kobe, you know, these are like needles in a haystack. But what I will tell you is if there was all these different teams winning, I'd be upset. But there's 20, there's in the last 10 years, 12 years, 15 years, 20 out of the 30 teams are pretty much in the same bucket. Oh, yeah. It's been, which means there's a fundamental problem with the NBA with a lack of talent or the ability to develop talent. The answer to that is like get serious about the G League and stop having all these kids leave college that are borderline NBA players to go to Europe and pay them some money to stay here so the NBA can get deeper, richer, and you'll find some stars out of that, a.k.a. the Knicks in 94, 95 with the Starks and the Masons and that sort of thing. Yeah. You don't think that some of those players are leaving and, and have nowhere to go because they don't want to play for $60,000 a year in the G League? So they're starting to do that, but that's really the next level for what needs to happen in the NBA is, is that there needs to be opportunities for more teams and more franchises that don't have to go abroad to win. And the, you're 100% right. Like Over the past 15 years, the talent level in the NBA, like some say it's the best ever, but like to me personally, I think the talent level is like it's really bad because there's – there's like about 10 superstar, elite superstars, right? And that's maybe even a stretch. And then after them, it's all a bunch of roles. At least 20 teams short of a superstar. Yeah. yeah. And like, there's yeah. a lot of talent, but superstar talent. Yes. It's yes. questionable, especially when they all gang up where they're playing three superstars on a team when you only got 11 or 12. 
But if you were developing superstar potential, playing the long game by yeah. making the G League more admirable, more interesting, pay the players more, have better situations, the guys aren't going to run to Europe for a hundred grand when they could play here for a hundred grand. Those guys don't want to go to Europe. Yeah, no. Right. It's very. I mean, here. I mean, why wouldn't you put? You know, and the real the answer to that question, by the way, is that. The reason why teams don't do that is because they don't control the G League players. So if you go play for the G League decks, Knicks, you're only controlling two or three of the players that are under contract. So the other nine, any team can take those guys. Yes. Yeah, so, so they got to figure out how to have, like in baseball, a minor league system. So that if your guy, if you invest in a guy, he goes and plays for your G League team, other teams can't just poach him without trading for him. That's the problem. I already had this conversation with Adam Silver. I killed him about this whole thing uh, a couple years ago. And then I killed him about the WNBA, which I love Adam Silver. I just want to note that I killed him as much as you can kill the commissioner, really, because, you know, I'm just like one small fraction of an opinion here. I'm sure he was like laughing his way back to his desk, but he's, you know, a great commissioner. I, I really miss David Stern. And I think one of the telltale signs of why Stern was such a great commissioner is to leave us with somebody like Adam Silver who was so well-trained and was able to have the kind of voice that even supersedes what even David was thinking. And that's why that league is flourishing because of their leadership and management. Oh, I'm yeah. a big Adam Silver fan. Like he gets it. He's really smart. And I thought David Stern was exceptionally smart too. He lived in Scarsdale. I got to know him a little bit. So, but I'm down on the, what I was really saying is I'm very down on the WNBA. I feel like that league is not achieving and again, it goes back to the level of acceptance. For some reason, like, there's too much acceptance around that league. The women game is really good, and that league should be much further along, and the women should deserve better. Yeah. Because they, they have talent, too. It's just that it just seems oh. like their marketing is so bad. They don't do anything. Like well, let me ask you three guys. When was the last time you guys went to a, uh, a WBA game? I've never, I've never attended one. Never. Never thought about it. It's bullshit. But, it, but if you go to a game, you'll be shocked. These women, it's physical, but also they play the game the way we would play it. Like, you can't relate to the way LeBron James or Kobe Bryant or these. You, you, there's nothing about those, the NBA, other than that's like a video game. And mm -hmm. it's amazing, yeah. don't get me wrong. But, like, when you watch a WNBA game, that's a game that I can relate to. I feel like I could, that's a much higher level than what I could play. But those women are really good. And it's, you know, pick and rolls, sharing the ball, team. I mean, it's just true. much more normal. A little bit that below the rim, right? And I think a lot of guys are missing out on some really good quality basketball. And it just pisses me off the three of you never even been to a game. That's the shit. It kills me. And believe so me, there are some games worth watching. This all is worth the price of a ticket. Female version of Larry Bird. And Della Don. I mean, there's a lot of really superstar level players. Yeah, there really is. Yeah. Who was the who was the woman that played pregnant? Um, there was Joel. a lady on Phoenix that got traded to UConn, that got traded to Connecticut. Who's? I mean, this woman. I God, I can't believe I can't remember her name. Was that Candace Owens? No, no, she's a good player too. But um, this lady is inside outside. Her footwork. I mean, that's the stuff that you go to a game like a, a good WNBA game. You can learn. You can actually learn some stuff there that you can take back to your own game and, and do. Yeah. Yeah, it's no, it's no, like, they they definitely surely have talent, but, like, going back to it, like, 
the NBA, yeah. like sh- like you said, like they really should market as much as they possibly can with the WNBA. It doesn't make sense to me why they don't. Because they're all pretty much involved with the NBA, which is an incredibly well-schooled, money-making machine. So you can't ignore that. And it takes a lot of time to run an NBA team. And then the WNBA gets a little bit of scraps. It's a good problem to have, I guess. It Not is good for the women. Not good for the women. No. Brandon, we have one burning question. It's the elephant in the room. Did you invent the Everything Bagel? Of course. <laughs> we knew it. We knew it. A friend of mine just was hearing about Gary V when I did that interview with Gary V. But uh, some, a friend of mine sent me some photos back from the old bakery that I used to work at. And it just it's a long story, but the really long story short of it was that I, I did bake bagels as a young kid, starting at around 11 or 12 when I was right coming off my paper route. I think I was maybe more 12, 13, actually, now I think about it. And uh, I was bored at night. I was the baker at night at this point. And I was just bored. I was just playing around with all these seasonings and just throwing everything on a bagel and trying all these combinations. And then consequently, after it was kind of said and done, I tried all these things. I was back by the oven messing around and I saw these seats together. I just threw it on the bagel and that's how we got the everything. But um, what's amazing when I think about it is like I'm working since I'm 10. Like I have kids like 10 years old. Imagine just waking up and going to work on my own. Being gone for the day, like my mother didn't even know where I was, like just working all day, like it's, like, it's absurd to me. So I, I was talking to my brother about this the other day, like you know, at thirteen or eight, I'd worked really three, four jobs, and uh-huh. I mean, literally, like working, working. I mean, it's just I look back, I'm like, I don't know how I did that, but it's so important the things that happen to you when you're younger. Even though I'm going through a pretty adverse situation as a kid. You know, not having money, not having a lot of food, clothing. But, you know, it, it brings out, you know, when your back's against the wall, which is really, with, again, the mindset, you got to put pressure on yourself. Because when your back's against the wall, everything else seems kind of boring. That's when they, things get exciting. You know, you got no money left in the bank. you got only two days left to ask that girl to the prom. You know, you, when your back's against the wall, that's when you, you remember those days. And you yeah. know you got to be your best to get this shit resolved. So, like, you know, having no money, no clothes, no food, like, you remember those days very clearly, you know, and what you're going to do about it and how you how you overcome that is critical. Like, we're going through this virus. You don't want to, you know, be on your deathbed and go, you know, when that virus happened, I did nothing. I was like right. a warmth on a log. I did nothing to help anybody, to help myself. All I do is I eat, sit on the couch and eat and watch the news and get depressed. I mean, that's depressing before you leave this planet that no one – Bad stuff happened or some really crazy stuff happened. You weren't out in front of it trying to do something to make it better. That's that's the person you want to be remembered for. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Brandon, two things before you go. Uh, one, thank you so much for making the everything bagel. It's my favorite thing in the entire world. <laughs> I wish I would have cashed in on that idea. Remember, you want to be an improver, not an inventor. Yes, exactly. The well, you know what? make the money. The inventors don't always make the money. As my kids, every time they see everything seasoning, the everything croissant, they take pictures and say, Dad, nice idea. Oh, you're not making money on this. My kids, <laughs> my kids are always killing me. But, you know, so you, when you come up with these ideas, you know, they're scalable. And you want to make sure you can take advantage and monetize it, which I was very young at the time. So, obviously, I didn't take advantage. And it, it's also crazy working at 10 years old. And then secondly... Um, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. And if we could be of any help to you, please don't hesitate to reach out. That's what I'm talking about. We mean man. it. We mean it. I mean it. <laughs> what is exactly. the best way? What is the best way for us to stay in touch? 
Well, my LinkedIn's over on my contacts. So you got to follow me on LinkedIn because I do answer all my LinkedIn messages myself. I take that that uh, application very seriously. You go to brandonsteiner.com, by the way, get the 22 laws of negotiating. You should go and register for the blog. But more importantly, get the 22 laws of negotiating, which that's even my daughter said that was my best work. Negotiations was my favorite course in, in college. You always remember some of those classes. But isn't it true like the class you remember with those instructors that were really tough or a pain in the ass? That was the best professor that I've ever had. Tough love. Yeah. So, um, but, you know, I'm on Facebook. I'm on, I'm, on, I'm on all the platforms. And I try to answer them all. Usually I spend about an hour or two on my social media, which I very rarely met any 60-year-olds that spend the kind of time on social that I do. <laughs> it's impressive. But, impressive. You know, you, you listen, either you stay current or, you know, you'd be left behind. I got friends. I'm like, listen, you're headed towards being extinct even before you die. Like, <laughs> like you're going to get to a point in about 10, 15 years, your grandchildren are not even going to contact you. You That's keep going great. on this rate. You're going to have people that have no idea. Like, you're still waiting for the phone to ring. You're still going to have a house phone. You're sitting there watching the 11 o'clock news. Like, nobody's going to know what the hell you're doing if you're even alive. You better get with it, man. You better yeah. start getting those alerts, getting the apps, and get yourself together. <laughs> so some people are good some, there's a lot of stubborn people out there that is not going with the program yeah well my dad texts with siri so he doesn't even know how to <laughs> but he's getting there he's that he's getting there he's 60 oh, himself text, and- texting was the best thing ever happened because he gave me an excuse for misspelling gave yeah. me an excuse for just coming up my own lingo i was like i had a, i was ahead of texting i was doing that like 30 years ago that's probably you know. awesome yeah probably awesome for you <laughs> <laughs> it's perfect I just got one gripe with you. Just one gripe. All right. That's fair. You, one gripe. Fair. You, 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 made a, you made a Lou Gehrig number four reference before. I don't know why you didn't reference Wilmer Flores. I mean, well, he's, he's no crying the baseball, man. I like Wilmer Flores. <laughs> what I love about Wilmer Flores, you know, before the World Series, in, um, when, when did they play the Kansas City? Whatever year that wasn't. They were playing Kansas City. So before this World Series, the Mets were going crazy. They beat the Cubs, whatever. And I offered Wilma Flores like $200,000 to sign and do like a, a contract with me. And his agent's wife said, no, we're going to wait more. I said, listen, this is the most Wilma Flores is getting. And yeah, for real. Sure enough, you know what happened in that series and you know what happened with him. And that's the stuff that just drives me crazy. Like when I see, Jeez. oh my, I bet he probably didn't even know. Like, But I liked him though. He was a good guy. He was a, he was a good player. I liked him. Um, the crying thing really moved me. I, I made money off it. So I started selling the photos while he was crying. And then MLB sent yeah. me a notice to him. I couldn't sell that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it is what it is, though, right? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, there's nothing ever stopped me. You know, but, you know I always had balls. And a little yeah. disruption never hurt anybody. No, you got to push boundaries. Oh, you got to push the boundaries. Yeah, that and the Pete Rose signed balls. You know, I definitely bet on baseball. You know, I, always, I, I was always first to do that. Yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. Brandon, we will definitely be in touch. Thank you so much for your time. This was great. Yeah, you're welcome. Good talking Thank to you guys. You so you much, that was Brandon Steiner. Um, great interview that we just had. Next week, we have another great episode. We have former NFL linebacker Kevin Malist on the show. Uh, make sure you check us out at Facebook, www.facebook.com slash the crossover. That's T H E C R O S S O V R. Twitter at It's The Crossover, Instagram at The Crossover, and most importantly, our website, It's The Crossover.com. Awesome. Great talking to you guys. Oh, yeah. 100%. Find his books. Yes, sir. <laughs> Until next time. <laughs>